This is MIT Technology Review. Is Toronto like Silicon Valley for nice people? Is this just a nice idea <laughs> that Canadian business people are not as cutthroat? Or is there really truth to that? On the surface, U.S. culture and Canadian culture can look almost identical. But in the July issue of Technology Review, journalist Brian Barth takes a look at the subtle differences in outlook that may explain why Canadian tech companies are a little less aggressive and a little more humane than their Silicon Valley counterparts. And people generally felt that there was truth to that. Some people felt that they wished Canadian business people could be more cutthroat so they'd be more successful. <laughs> Today on the show, a look at Canadian values and how they've led Canadian tech companies down a very different path. I'm Wade Rausch, and this is Deep Tech. What kind of stamp do national culture and national character put on innovation and entrepreneurship? Canada has a reputation as an emerging leader in artificial intelligence and quantum computing. And yet, the country hasn't produced a Facebook or a Google with visions of conquering the world through technology. That just doesn't seem to be the Canadian way. And in fact, when American tech companies like Google do try to export US-style innovation to Canada, the culture clash can be severe. Brian Barth is an American journalist who spent seven years living and writing in Toronto. His feature article in the July issue of Technology Review is called Enter the Narwhal, and it's built around a thought experiment. If Silicon Valley had evolved in Canada rather than California, what kinds of tech companies and products would be coming out of it now? So let's talk about Sidewalk Labs, because that whole story seems somewhat emblematic to me of the differences between how business and entrepreneurship and innovation work in Canada as compared to the US. So tell us what Sidewalk Labs was supposed to be in the first place. Yeah, so it's a New York-based company founded in 2015 with the idea of integrating more technology into urban systems. Essentially the ultimate IoT company, right? Because it's about bringing technology not just into your home and your stuff, but into public space, buildings, sidewalks, trash cans, streetlights, roads, bridges, governance as well. Brian explains that in 2017, an agency called Waterfront Toronto selected Sidewalk Labs, which is a subsidiary of Google's parent company Alphabet, to take a 12-acre industrial site called Keyside and redevelop it as a kind of high-tech city of the future. They pulled out all the bells and whistles. So there's this huge press event to make the announcement with the Prime Minister, the Premier of Ontario, the Mayor of Toronto, VIPs from Google. They cast it as this is the most ambitious smart city project that has ever been undertaken. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to announce that Waterfront Toronto has found an extremely promising partner in Sidewalk Labs. A world leader in urban innovation, Sidewalk Labs will create a testbed for new technologies in Keyside. Technologies that will help us build smarter, greener, more inclusive cities 
which we hope to see scaled across Toronto's eastern waterfront and eventually in other parts of Canada and around the world. They had all these just incredible renderings and ideas of so many different technologies from things like pavement that is embedded with LED lights instead of lane markings. And so you can kind of modulate the lane markings to adjust for traffic flow in real time in coordination with autonomous vehicle technology. All sorts of fancy systems to deliver things rather than delivery trucks clogging up the streets. It's all going to be underground in these tunnels with robots. And then there's going to be other robots that haul away trash and recycling in those same tunnels. They had this very far out thing about what they called building raincoats, which were kind of like these big umbrellas, like clear, I guess, plastic structures that could spring out from a building, depending on the weather, in order to make the space around the building more habitable in snow and rain. And it sounds like this was a genuine kumbaya moment. Like there was enthusiasm and excitement on both sides, for a while anyway. And then the welcome mat at some point got pulled out from underneath the sidewalk, right? Yeah. It started, I would say, the very minute that Justin Trudeau took the stage <laughs> and made this announcement because there were already people in the community that were hip to this issue and critical of the tech industry's privacy practices and, and that sort of thing and, and ethics in general. So that community in Toronto was immediately galvanized. They were already focused on these issues, but suddenly they have this elephant in their backyard. The elephant, of course, was Sidewalk's relationship to Alphabet and Google, a company that built a trillion dollar business by hoovering up data about user behavior for use in its targeted advertising programs. And very quickly it was like, oh, here's this epic David and Goliath good evil debate that we in the media love, <laughs> for better or worse. And the narrative around it just shifted, I would say, like a night and day shift from being this amazing thing that we have to have to being this thing that we have to, you know, really think hard about and is probably just full of pitfalls and maybe we never should have gotten involved in this. And then how did it all ultimately fall apart? So Waterfront Toronto faced so much criticism and they were basically forced to kind of put Sidewalk Labs on a really short leash. Like the original agreement was like, here's the key to the city, do whatever you want, essentially. And they just step by step put restrictions and constraints on what Sidewalk Labs could do. The city is going to get sort of royalties from any IP that's developed or the government is going to control uh, how data is collected and used, and a whole list of things like that to the point where Sidewalk Labs started saying, well, can we even make this work economically? Because we need a certain scale to deploy some of these technologies, otherwise it's not going to work for us. And then in May, Sidewalk Labs quite abruptly said, we're out. They said uh, the economics weren't working, especially in light of the pandemic, and they needed to pull out. I asked Brian whether he thinks the collapse of the Sidewalk Labs deal can be chalked up to a cultural mismatch between an American tech giant and the leaders of Canada's largest city. Many, many people have said some version of this to me that they didn't realize how American they were. <laughs> 
in their approach, which is to say that they didn't realize how aggressive and not listening and not perceptive they were. And this kind of American exceptionalism that we're Google, we're the most amazing thing since sliced bread, and of course you want us. <laughs> like, how could you not just take everything that we're saying at face value and eat it up? That just became more and more present in the air as time went on, to the point where all those people who originally kind of welcomed them got their hackles up more and more, not necessarily because they were worried about privacy and surveillance and all these things that the activists were talking about, but more because they were dealing with Google, or dealing with Sidewalk Labs, and feeling like there wasn't a respect or understanding that the local government might assert itself on behalf of what its population was asking for. So, Brian, you wrote in the piece that some entrepreneurs at least are drawn to Canada by its image as, I'm going to quote you here, a liberal utopia where diversity, inclusion, and humility triumph over greed and bigotry, unquote. <laughs> and there's something in there that corresponds to Canadians' real perceptions of Americans, I think. And almost everyone you quote in your story seems to believe in one way or another that Canadian values are different from American values. Uh, and that that manifests itself in entrepreneurship and innovation in very important ways. So I wanted to ask you to summarize the feelings you were running into among Canadians. You know, some people call that Canadian exceptionalism. This idea that Canada is so much more enlightened than the U.S. And some people also would say that's a load of BS, that Canada has just as many issues around inequality and, and racism as the U.S. And, and there's truth to both of those points of view, I think. That manifests itself in business in general with an absence of the libertarian ethos around corporate culture. There is a very prominent strain in the American business community that is profoundly antithetical to government regulation, the less the better. And that strain is much less present in Canada. So I then ended up interviewing a bunch of tech CEOs and I asked them that question that you just asked me, you know, is there a difference? What's the difference? Like, is, is this just a nice idea <laughs> that Canadian business people are not as cutthroat? Or is there really truth to that? And people generally felt that there was truth to that. Some people felt that they wished Canadian business people could be more cutthroat so they'd be more successful. <laughs> so there was a range of reactions. But the more I probed that question, the more it did seem to come down to culture, that Canadian families, the Canadian educational system, Canadian society doesn't tend to produce that iconic Silicon Valley libertarian founder <laughs> that the U.S. has produced so many of. The headline on your story is Enter the Narwhal. It's obviously a reference to the unicorn concept from Silicon Valley. So it sounds like the setup for a joke, right? But what's the difference between a unicorn and a narwhal? 
Sure. Well, it, it, it is a joke. And I think it started as a joke in Canada, actually. A unicorn is this glamorous, imaginary creature, right? <laughs> a narwhal is this very kind of homely. Well, so first of all, a narwhal also has a single horn in the middle of its forehead. Uh, it's like a small whale that uh, lives in the Arctic. And they're known as very reclusive, like it's very hard to track narwhals and study them. They're kind of homely creatures in a, in a way, besides the horn. They're not definitely not glamorous like a unicorn. But as one guy told me, but they are real, most importantly. And his point of view is the Silicon Valley approach is, at least in the consumer-facing companies, a lot about the glamour and propping up the valuation around an image. I wondered if from all of the companies you met and the CEOs you talked to, you have a favorite example of a quote-unquote narwhal company. What do they have in mind when they talk about narwhals? Well, the one that I, I use in a story, and, and they happen to be uh, in the smart city space, uh, it's a company called MyoVision that is based in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. They're large. They work all over the world. They, they mainly sell technology around traffic signaling. I'd interviewed the CEO, the founder, a few different times. He, personality-wise, he was just very emblematic, I thought, of the narwhal because he's just so quiet and so humble and so not prone to grand proclamations about his company or about much of anything, uh, which is very Canadian. Curtis McBride is his name, the, the founder of MyoVision. And in terms of business practices, the contrast that I drew in the story was that MyoVision approaches their work essentially from an open source perspective. And so Curtis, who was on an advisory board for Waterfront Toronto for the Sidewalk Labs project, he often would speak in the media uh, to try to educate people about this idea of the IT architecture and the company that owns the architecture, essentially the intellectual property of that system, they hold all the strings in terms of the data, in terms of the economics. If that is a monopoly, that could be very dangerous economically and even to democracy. And so he sort of drew this contrast of doing that in an open source way uh, as a different kind of business model. You talked with Ian Klugman, the CEO of Communitech, the uh, startup accelerator in Kitchener-Waterloo. I think Klugman told you that he saw the essence of Canada's approach to technology as being the anti-Facebook, the opposite of Facebook and that he thought it was important for somebody to step up and rather than moving fast and breaking things, maybe Canadians could take a more humane approach and move slow and fix things. Is that an accurate rendering of what is going on in Canadian business and technology? It would be naive to not understand it as him promoting a brand, but it's certainly in alignment with the values in Canada and in the business community. I think we have to be very careful to not overdo that, oversimplify that. We don't necessarily know that Google like set out to be a monopoly, but they were just incredibly successful and now that success is in some ways to our detriment. So it's easy to say that when you're small, is my point. <laughs> and it would be naive and silly to say, well, Canadian companies wouldn't follow in the footsteps of Silicon Valley, given the opportunity. 
if you play out your thought experiment all the way to the end and you ask what would a Canadian unicorn look like, would it act any different on the world stage? Would it cut a different figure from a giant American tech company? What do you think? In the thought experiment, I think it does just because Canada does. My biggest conclusion of like Canadianness is it's just, it's not so extreme. I wrote a number of stories in the last few years along the lines of, will Trumpism come to Canada? I debated with a lot of Canadians about this. I started out from the assumption of it is going to come because usually what happens in the U.S. tends to happen in Canada like a few years later. I mean, there are Canadian politicians who are running against Trudeau in the last election who are using the Donald Trump playbook and they got 1% of the vote. I mean, that element is there, but it doesn't have the same traction. Okay, Brian, uh, it's been a delight talking with you and I wanna thank you for writing your piece and for taking the time to talk about it today. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Deep Tech. This is a podcast we're making exclusively for subscribers of MIT Technology Review to help bring alive the issues our journalists are thinking and writing about. You'll find Brian Barth's article, Enter the Narwhal, in the July issue of the magazine, alongside the TR35. It's our annual look at 35 innovators under the age of 35 who are breaking new ground in fields like solar power, cryptocurrencies, and COVID-19 testing. Check out the whole list at technologyreview.com. Deep Tech is written and produced by me and edited by Jennifer Strong and Michael Riley. Our theme music is from Title Card Music and Sound in Boston. I'm Wade Rausch. Thank you for listening. <laughs>